Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Than thousands elsewhere. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand that. Cause us to preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, that, that song we just sang was written by Matt Redman in 19, released in 1995, and I hesitate to say this, but Matt Redman stole the lyrics. He, he stole the lyrics from King David and these guys that are called the sons of Korah, and, and I'll prove it to you. Psalm 27, verse 4, King David sings that there's one thing he asks and seeks, and that is that he could dwell in God's house and endlessly gaze on his beauty. Psalm 26, 8, he sings that it's the place God's glory dwells. Psalm 63, 7, he sings about singing under God's wings. Psalm 36, 7, uh, David sings that the children of Adam uh, take refuge in, and now I quote, the shadow of your wings, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. When I was a kid, we got free punch at church and sometimes cookies. But I would never describe Sunday school as drinking from the river of God's delights. Well, most of, Red, most of Redmond's song uh, comes from Psalm 84, from the Sons of Korah. To, this is the title. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, which is some kind of instrument, I think, a psalm of the Sons of, of Korah, which is a totally different, interesting topic, who Korah was. But anyway, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Then this is verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So Matt Redman stole the lyrics uh, to the song. And to be honest, the song has always kind of bugged me because it seems like when we sing it, we're lying. Been singing it since 1995, and every time I'm kind of like, uh, well, you know, I don't know. I feel kind of dishonest. Better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. I know church is the people. Well, I say that church is the people, but the psalmist is talking about the gathering of the people at the temple. So he's talking about what most people commonly mean by, by church. My soul faints for church. Better is one day in church than a thousand elsewhere. I don't think so. Oh, oh my goodness, kids, Homer, we're late for church. I'm glad I dressed last night. Oh, I'd love to go with you, honey, but I got a lot of work to do around the bed. Homer, the Lord only asks for an hour a week. In that case, you should have made a week an hour longer. Lousy God. <laughs> and the very same goes for Ezekiel, which brings us back to our starting point, the nine tenets of constancy. Uh. Damn it! <laughs> well, I seem to have lost my place. So I'll start over. Aw, oh, for the love of crumb cake. Our sermon today is on constancy, in as much as the... Yay! Oh, man, am I glad to get out of here! Hey, calm down. You're wrinkling your church clothes. Who cares? This is the best part of the week. It's the longest possible time before my church. <laughs> best part of the week is the longest possible time before more church, according to Lisa Simpson. Learning about the nine tenets of constancy put everyone to sleep. And maybe, maybe that's what it means to enter God's rest, which, I mean, was the topic of the sermon uh, last week. God puts you to sleep with boredom. My wife... Uh, 
actually did that, what Homer, Homer did, uh, three times during a service at the Westminster Abbey. It was after an all-night flight, and they sat us in the belfry up front where everybody could, could see, and she fell asleep, and her head went bam into this paneling right next to her. The thud, like, echoed through the whole abbey. She did it three times during the Anglican liturgy. I'm a preacher, and I usually like my sermons, but after an hour, I'm, I'm ready for, for a break. want to go see how the Broncos are doing. So the song kind of bugs me, and uh, the psalm has confused me. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The, the psalmist isn't talking about lecture halls where people give lectures on constancy, morality, and ethical duty. He's talking about the stone temple in Jerusalem. And so I've wondered, what was it about that place that made it so lovely? Because it seems terrifying to me. Fire, priests, sacrifice, and religious people. That sounds like the set to a horror movie. <laughs> what was it that made it so lovely, awesome, and desirable all at once? Well, it was, it was obviously an utterly impressive building, especially for 1000 uh, BC, but it hadn't always been a building. It had once been only a, a tent. So the building was impressive, but more than the building, it must have been the fact that God's presence or beauty or glory would somehow manifest in that place, and, and God's presence was truly desirable, even if it was terrifying all at the, all at the same time. But, but I think this still brings me back to my question, um, why that place? Why did God choose to make his glory dwell there? Why did God, sorry, why did God choose to meet his, his people there? What was so great about that dwelling place? I've studied and I've thought about this long and hard, like for most of my, most of my life, and I'm guessing that it must have had something to do with uh, where it was, uh, what it was, what was in it, and, and how you entered. Where it was is really rather uh, amazing. According to Orthodox Jews and several hints from the Scriptures, the temple stood on the foundation stone where it was believed that God had made Adam, which means humanity, uh, in the Garden of Eden. It was also the spot where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, who was his laughter, remember? Who was the promise, who was Isaac's life. And, and yet he was stopped at the last minute by this God-man who provided a, a, a lamb. It was the spot where King David repented of his arrogant fear and offered to suffer for the people. Um, and it was a spot where his son would be tried, then nailed to a tree in a garden just outside the walls of the temple in, in the old city. It is the spot where the old city, old Jerusalem, would be destroyed, and the new Jerusalem would descend from God like a bride adorned for her husband. The temple was at the heart of the Lord's bride, and in her heart was a tree in a garden. Well, that's where it was. What it was was a tent that was now made of stone. If you've read the Pentateuch, you know that God gave these elaborate instructions to Moses that just bore you to death when you first read through it. All these instructions about this, this tent. About 500 years later, after this terrifying little incident in, in which God smote a guy named Uzzah, David endeavored to turn that tent into a house of stone. And that makes sense to me. Because you do not store plutonium in a tent, right? Let alone God. Well, God gets a little miffed at, at David and his desire to build this stone temple. He says that he prefers to travel with his people than to be placed in a box of, of stone. But God relents and he says to David that a son of David will build him a house. Well, Solomon, a son of David, but not the only son of David, uh, Solomon builds the house of stone. What's in it is what God had dictated to Moses regarding the tent. I'm sure we don't understand the meaning of everything in the temple. However, we do understand that everything in the temple had a story tied to its tail. In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes about how as a little boy, he loved his mother's garden and his father's tool shed. 
He found them terrifying and yet wonderful all at once. When he would enter the tool shed, he wouldn't know what everything was or what everything did, and yet he knew that everything had a story tied to its tail. And that's what made the garden and the tool shed a thrilling adventure. Well, the temple was built on the side of the garden, and I think it's like our father's tool shed. And we're supposed to kind of wonder, what's he building, and how's he going to do it? In the very heart of the temple, on top of the foundation stone, was a coffin. In Hebrew, the word for coffin can also be translated ark. In the ark, or the coffin of the covenant, was the Ten Commandments written on stone. That's, that's the law. The law is the knowledge of good and evil, right? But not living knowledge like a person, but dead knowledge like a stone. People can be good, right? But the law only describes the good. Remember that Eve and old Adam took knowledge of the good from a tree in the middle of the garden and everything died. Humanity died and the good died. God alone is good, and God's word makes everything good. So knowledge of the good hanging on a tree must have looked something like this. That's the good, like in flesh, like fruit on a, on a tree. Humanity, that's what Adam means. Humanity took the life of the good to make themselves good, and everything died. Any time, any time you try to create, redeem, or justify yourself, you, you take the life of the good and everything dies. In the heart of the temple, I was saying, was a coffin that contained the law, and on top of that coffin was a seat called the, the mercy seat. On the day of atonement, and that, that word from atonement comes from the same word as, as mercy seat, on the day of atonement, blood was spink, spring, sprinkled on that seat. The seat was also called the judgment seat, uh, which was also a throne. On either side were two cherubim made of gold, just like the two cherubim that guarded the way to the tree of life in the middle of the garden. You remember that when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, God placed two cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Jesus said, I am the life. So the tree of life in the middle of the garden must have looked something like, like this. You remember that the night before we took his life on the tree in the garden, John points out that it was a garden and it was a tree, the night before we took his life on the tree in the garden, he gave his life at dinner saying, this is my body and this is my blood. For 1,500 years, God had taught the Jews that the life is in the blood, and Jesus says, this is my blood. You see, all that means he's saying, what you take, I freely give. I even forgive before you take it. That's forgiveness, grace, mercy. Well, like I was saying, mercy would sit on the throne. Good given would like stand on the coffin of good taken as if it were a throne. One day, you remember, John saw the slaughtered lamb standing on that throne. We know that Jesus, good Good, good taken and life taken. We know that, that Jesus is no longer, no longer dead, but sitting on his Father's throne, and from that throne flows a river. It's the judgment of God. It's love. And what is love? Well, love is life given and the good given. It's someone bleeding for you. That's love. Well, anyway, in the Holy of Holies, in the heart of the temple, which was the heart of the city, which is God's bride, was mercy covering the law. So, in the heart of the temple was the covenant of law, 
literally contained within the covenant of mercy, surrounded by two cherubim with a whole bunch of flaming swords flying every which way, right outside a drawn curtain, a curtain that would one day rip and from which would flow a river. The curtain is on that inner part. You can kind of see two cherubim that Solomon built for either side of the ark, and then the curtain would hang in, the, in that temple separating the Holy of Holies from the, whole, uh, from, from the holy place. Just outside the curtain was the holy place that contained the altar of incense and a table for something called the bread of the presence that nobody at the time quite knew what that meant. And ten lamps, each with seven branches, like the seven-branched lamp that was the menorah in the tabernacle. Outside the temple building was an inner court with a giant burning altar and a, and a molten sea, a giant basin of water for cleansing the priests. The priests who sprinkled the blood on the altar and on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. This is so important because we have utterly missed this. In the Old Testament, any time a person ate meat, it was considered a sacrifice. <laughs> the only question was who it was that a person was sacrificing to. So in Leviticus 17, God commands the Israelites to bring any and all slaughtered animals, that's meat, to, to the temple so the priest could offer the blood to the Lord. Leviticus, uh, in Leviticus, God says this, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, and the life is in the blood. Understand, God claims to give all the blood as if all the life is his. Do you have a life? Well, anyway, when a worshiper sacrificed, they were returning the blood they took and thanking God for the life that had been given. You see, the blood circulated from the temple and back to the temple, bringing life to all, as if the temple was a giant heart and all creation was somehow the body, bringing life to all, except those that damned the life as if the life was just their own. Outside the inner court was an outer court where worshipers would gather and sing and, and feast. The temple was like a giant barbecue with singing and dancing and feasting and laughing. Deuteronomy 14, Israel's commanded to take, check this out, 10% of the GNP, the gross national product of Israel, and spend it on, now I quote, whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your heart craves. The only provision is that they are to eat it there in his presence with joy and that everyone is to be invited. The outer court was like a place designed for good things to run wild. I once counted Israel had something like 80 days, 80 days of commanded feasting per year, and Israel only had one day of commanded fasting, and that was on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement that now we remember as the greatest feast of all, the Feast of Easter. We see what I'm saying is everything had a story tied to its tail, and we're still only glimpsing little bits and pieces of the story. That's where the temple was, what it was, what was in it, but everything was kind of about how you entered. It was, it was a journey. And the crazy thing is it was a journey that had actually gone with them on their journey from Egypt to Israel, remember, as the tent. It was a journey back to the garden and communion with God. It was a journey to the promised land, the heart of Jerusalem. It was a journey to God's promised rest, the seventh day. Now, this is really wild, but the book of Hebrews claims that the outer courts in the holy place represent this current age or, or these ages, but the holy of holies represents the age to come, the eternal so it's not simply a journey to a place, but a journey to a time beyond our time, before our time, and all around our time. 
So it's not simply a journey uh, to a place, but a time. It's the presence of eternity in time. It's that time invading this time. It's the presence of God's constancy in our temporality. So it's also the, the, the presence of everywhere in the midst of nowhere. It's like the outpost of heaven in the midst of hell. Like we said last time, our world is like a black bubble of nothingness floating in the somethingness that is God. <laughs> the holy of holies in the temple was like an outpost of the somethingness in the middle of the nothingness. In other words, the inside was bigger than all the outside. In our world too, says Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And so it's worth noting at this point that Jesus referred to his body as his temple. And we are his body and temple. So what am I saying in, in all of that? I'm, I'm saying that entering the temple was like entering a story. And not just the story of one thing, but the story of everything, including you. A worshiper certainly didn't comprehend much of anything, but they could see that everything was part of the story. They couldn't comprehend the story, but the story comprehended them. You see, the sanctuary is the story. The temple is the story, the only story. It was the beginning, right? Every story has a beginning. And it was the end. And it was the way from one place to another place. That's, that's a story. In the beginning, there is a tree in a garden. At the end of the story, there is also a tree in a garden, the new Jerusalem that comes down. And in the middle, there is a tree in the garden in the old Jerusalem. The lamb standing on the mercy seat is the beginning, the end, and the way. He's the plot. So in him, all things hold together and have their meaning. Everything that's anything comes together in the Holy of Holies. It's the story that defines and comprises all story. J.R. Tolkien said this. He said, you just can't keep the gospel out of stories. At some level, every story is the story of love lost and love regained. Love is life, and life is the good. It's the story of life lost. For we took it from a tree as if it were our own. It's the story of life lost and life regained for love gave, even forgave what we had taken, his life, which is the good, which is love in the flesh. And once we see that we have been loved, we love and the life becomes eternal. It flows through the entire body without ceasing for each part knows the evil, that's damning the life. Each part knows the evil but constantly chooses the good uh, for the good is love and love is constantly losing your life and then finding it in joy. Eternal life is constant communion with God and your neighbor. It's a constant communion of mutual sacrifice. Well, the gospel's a story. And when you hear a story, you don't simply learn facts, right? You don't, you don't know things simply as, as things, but the things know you. you. You taste the bread, you drink the wine, you feel the sorrow and the joy. You don't simply know about facts, knowledge that you have conquered. You are transformed by the meaning as if the meaning knew you, impregnated you with itself such that you would bear fruit that lasts. Entering the temple, I'm saying, is like was like entering a story, a story that then entered you and made everything new. Michael Mead wrote this. The word story comes from storehouse. So a story is a store or a storehouse. Things are actually stored in the story. And what tends to be stored is its meaning. 
The word for that in Greek, by the way, is logos. But, but anyway, a, a story stores meaning, number one. And number two, a story reveals people. Jesus is the word of God. Um, Jesus, the word of God, is, is the meaning, and, and the word gives meaning well, to every person. So, if you want to use a person, what do you ask for? Their resume. You want the facts. If you're hiring an employee, but if you want to know and be known by a person, what do you say? Tell me your story. When Mr. Rogers died, his wife found a slip of paper in his wallet, and this is what it said. I never met a person I couldn't love once I knew their story. Three, stories unite persons. If you have a good Thanksgiving, it's because you got together with friends and family and you told a bunch of stories. You told remember when stories. The stories will include pain and shame and, and sorrow and loss. The, there'll be stories of love lost and then love found or love that found y'all. You'll weep for, for you know each other's sorrow and you'll laugh as you experience a mutual joy. You will laugh at your own ego, right? sacrificed on the altar of mercy and mutual love, grace. And if you have a bad Thanksgiving, it will be because you long for the good and you are still experiencing the middle of the story. You, you enter the story by surrendering your sorrow and your pain and your fear and your suffering. That's how you enter the story. And, and if you don't enter the story, you get stuck in outer darkness. Well, anyway, number four, stories unite people and make a home. And you're going to experience this. No matter how good your Thanksgiving is, there's something inside of you that will say, I'm still not home. This was like a taste or a glimpse, but I'm not home. And the worse your Thanksgiving is, the deeper will be your laughter once the plot has infused all your facts with his meaning, revealing his story in you and uniting you with all of heaven, your family. Number five, stories tell us who we are. Every night when my kids uh, were little, they'd say, Daddy, tell us a story. Daddy, tell me a story. And their very, 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 very favorite story is, Daddy, tell me of the day I was born. They didn't want facts. They didn't give a rip about the address of the hospital as if they needed to find out if it was really true that they were born and they actually had a father. They wanted the story. So I'd say, John, buddy, your mommy wanted a baby so bad, she cried herself to sleep for a year. And when God finally put you in mommy's tummy, oh, I was so happy. <laughs> I was so happy. I would talk to you every night at her tummy saying, hey, buddy, hey, Scooter, I can't wait to meet you. I love you. When the day finally came, well, there were some problems, and, and John, I drove like a race car driver all the way to the hospital because I was worried that you might die and mommy might die, but after a whole day, a whole day of, of pain and suffering, you were born, and the moment your mommy saw you, she screamed for joy, and she said, oh, I want another one. <laughs> that's your little sister, Elizabeth. My son John has been through hell at times. And I doubt the address of the hospital was any help at all. But the story, you are God's answer to your parents' prayers. <laughs> I think that may have saved his life. May have also kept him from killing his little sister, who was the next one to come along. Well, you are the answer to your creator's prayers. Do you know that? You are. God talks to himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's how it works. You're not an accident. You are the manifestation of his word. That's the story. And when you believe it, you'll begin to live it. 
Number six, stories tell us who we are and stories make us who we are. If you tell a little boy the story of Superman, he'll dress like Superman. He'll, he'll try to be Superman. He'll act like Superman, but not because he has to, but because he, he wants to. And yet the story of Superman is, is not the story of what he needs to do. It's the story of what Superman has done. If you told him the story of how Superman saved the world, but then you said, well, he only saved the world if you absolutely believe he saved the world, but he, he won't save you or the world. In fact, he'll torture most of the world if you're not good, which means you don't really, really, really believe. Well, that would kind of wreck the story. And over time, it would utterly wreck that little boy. The story of Superman is not a story that the little boy can create. It's the story that creates little boys and turns them into men. We see the temple as the story of the Superman, quite literally, the eschatos Adam, the ultimate man, the end man, the, the word of God creating us, saving us, and sanctify us, but, but we butchered the story. In fact, I think we've, like, well, crucified the plot. We've turned it into facts with which we try to create, save, and justify ourselves, even by desecrating our neighbors. Number seven, you can only live your story by trusting the story that's been written. Entering the temple was like entering a story. But going to church in America is usually like going to a class. I hope I give you information but only because it's part of the story. And usually I only give you information because I think it's been ripped from the story and turned into a threat. You see, there's a reason that the law was kept in a coffin <laughs> under the seat of mercy on which stands the lamb as if he had been newly slain. The law is contained within the story of grace. Like the facts of this world are contained within the story of creation. It's the story that gives meaning to all the facts. We now know trillions and trillions and trillions of facts, and we don't know what any of them mean. It's the plot that brings the facts from death to life, and Jesus is the plot. The gospel is a story. But it's as if men seeking power have ripped out the pages, cut up the words, and rearranged them into a ransom note or a threat. The story reads, you have died, and now watch your God do the good. But we eliminate God, rearrange the words to read, do the good, or you will die. And by the way, we'll sell you some knowledge of good so that then you can, you can do the good. That's religion. We, we seize control of the story, crucify the plot, and everything dies. When Eve takes knowledge of the good from the tree, what is she doing? She's raping the good and consuming the good to make herself good. She's taking the life and killing the life, trying to make herself alive. She's seizing control of the plot and trying to write her own story. But when the bride of Christ comes back to the tree, when the bride of Christ comes back to the tree and receives the life, what is she doing? Well, she's confessing her sin and receiving God's grace, who is her groom. She's surrendering to the person of the good in the sacrament of the covenant. She's surrendering her story to the plot and bearing the fruit of his life, the good. And now, if I, by chance, just happen to offend your feminist sensibilities, listen closely. The good in flesh and hanging on the tree is the Superman, the eschatos man, our husband, and humanity is his bride. We are his, 
his, his temple. We don't write the story, but we surrender to the plot who romances us from the tree and we give birth to the new creation. That's the story. It's one of the greater triumphs of Lucifer, writes Madeline Ingle, that he has managed to make Christians believe that a story is a lie. Partly through modernism, partly through arrogance, I think Satan has convinced modern American Christians that the Bible is the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge that must be taken and applied to our lives rather than the story of God's life who knows us and is applying us to himself. It contains knowledge of good and evil in a story. Of course, church is boring and, and terrifying if we think we come to get knowledge of the good so we can write the story, how to develop the nine tenets of the virtues of constancy so you can make yourself constant. But, but if we come to church to hear the story that God has written, maybe constancy, God's eternity, will begin to transform our temporality. When they came to the temple, they encountered eternity, and it transformed their temporality. That's how stories work. When you get to the end of a book, it is finished. And so you know the plot, and then the plot changes the meaning of every page in the story. And just knowing that you're in a story will make you want to keep reading, for you know that in the end, every page will be transformed, metamorphosed by the revelation of the plot when it is finished. Jesus is the plot. And so all things work together for your good because Jesus is the good and you are called according to his purpose. So anyway, that's the introduction to the sermon. Now let's read the psalm. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. That's an astonishing picture. Sparrows find their home on the altar. But they knew sparrows were also sacrificed on the altar. Do you think it's possible to lose your life and find it? Abraham did. He lost Isaac and then received him back along with all of humanity. You see, I think there's an entire new creation on the other side of that curtain. People say, God would never ask me to sacrifice a child. Yeah, not like that. And yet he does ask such things, doesn't he? At least a million times a day. Some of you have lost children. You know, he asks each of us to entrust ourselves in all we love to his care. He asks us to lose our lives so we can find them. Anytime you read a good story, you lose yourself and then you find yourself in the story because the story has found itself in you. You sacrifice control and you surrender to the author's control. To enter the Holy of Holies, we surrender the old man that we thought we had made and we receive the eternal man who it turns out we, we truly are, that which God makes. The flaming sword cuts to the division of the false self and, and the true. We lose ourselves and find ourselves in him. That's the story, the story of grace. Verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. What a line. As they go through the valley of Baca, that means the valley of, of weeping and first century manuscripts reveal that it's also Gehenna. Pilgrims traveling through Gehenna, uh, they would travel through Gehenna on their way uh, to God's rest in the heart of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Their tears in the valley of Gehenna 
henna would like make it fertile, make it bear fruit. And you know, faith, faith grows in doubt. Hope grows in despair. Love in places of deep sorrow. That's the story. That's the story of faith, hope, and love. Verse six, as they go through the valley of Gehenna, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. And the early rain covers it with pools. I think the picture is the pools of their tears. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Each one. Our stories begin in a million different places, right? And yet they all end up in one place, the foot of the throne on which stands the Lamb. That's the story. And that's the way. For as long as you refuse the story, you remain lost in outer darkness. Or God forbid, even stuck in Gehenna for a time. But if that's the case, if you find yourself in hell, keep walking, because this is at the end of the story. The lamb standing on the throne is the end. It's not the end until you come to the throne. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Literally, look on the face of your Messiah. You see, the psalmist is talking as if the Messiah, the Lord, is in his heart calling out to the Lord that's standing on the throne. Paul tells us that when we cry, Abba, Father, it is, um, it, it is the spirit of the Messiah in our hearts bearing testimony that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs of God. And Paul even writes that Christ is being formed within us. Describing her famous vision, Julianne of Norwich tells how she saw that the fall of humanity, all right? The story of the fall. She saw how the fall of humanity and the incarnation of Christ when Jesus was born into human flesh, that it was the same event. So when we, his bride, took his life on the tree in the garden, he descended into the womb of Mary and he descended into us as body broken and blood shed. He descended into you. He's the eschatos Adam. That's why he descended into you because he's the Superman and he's determined to live his life in you and with you that your story would be his story. So every moment would be transformed by his presence so that you would be his home and he would be your home. And you'd have a great Thanksgiving dinner. A day in his courts is a thousand elsewhere. Not just better, it is a thousand elsewhere. And it transforms a thousand elsewhere such that all your nowhere, all your nowhere becomes his somewhere. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He descended into hell not because you walk uprightly, but so that you would walk uprightly and he would not have to behold one good thing. He's in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what scripture says. And no good thing does he withhold. No good thing, no good thing. He's giving you the knowledge of evil so you will constantly choose the good, which, which is all that truly is and who you truly are. He's giving you his life and it is finished and that's the story. He's telling you of the day that you are born. The story of the day that you are born. The temple's like a womb. And in it, you learn the story of your own creation. And trusting it, you were born through a torn curtain and into reality. This is the, the world you see around you. This is the sixth day of creation. And the seventh day is your home. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed, happy is the one who trusts in you. Scott Momaday is a Native American writer. Some of you may know his name. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 19... 
69. He was a literature professor, I think, at USC. Now he's retired. You may recognize him from those Ken Burns things on, on the West. He used to tell of a day that started early one morning when he was just a little boy. His father woke him early before the sunrise, told him to get dressed. He took him by the hand to the house of an old Indian squaw of the Kiowa tribe, and he left him there, promising to return. The old woman told me stories all day, said, said Mama Day. She described rituals. She sang songs and told me the history of the Kiowa people, how we were born out of a hollow log in the Yellowstone River, how the Kiowa migrated to the south. She told of wars with the other tribes and blizzards and cold and famine. She told of great chiefs and heroic deeds and buffalo hunts, times of plenty and times of rejoicing. She told of the coming of the white man, the clash, the war, the moving, always moving, Kansas, Nebraska, deprivation, starvation, captivity, forced marches ending finally at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. She told of the reservation, the desperation, and the determination to survive. She told me stories all day. That evening, my father came and said, time to go. And then Mama Day says this, I left that day a Kiowa. Maybe that's why we go to church. So we would leave this day a Christian. So we would leave this age the image and likeness of God. We are the church. We are the temple. We're the bride of Christ, and we are the Jerusalem above that must somehow be giving like birth, feeling the birth pains and giving birth to ourselves, our, our true selves, our own mother. So, so we come together to tell stories, sing songs, and remember the plot who brings everything together and makes us his own, makes us his own dwelling place. And he says, how lovely is my dwelling place. Well, there's a tree, there's the altar, and the mercy seat, and there's the bread of the presence, which is the Word of God and the plot. He says, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. He's wanting you to remember. He says, do this in remembrance. So come forward, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cup is, is wine. The light cup is juice and then ingest the plot, <laughs> ingest the plot, and give birth to the story. In Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you that you are good. We're beginning to know, because we've been known, that you are good. And so, Lord God, we invite you to fill your temple God, I thank you that you descended on that temple of stone and you filled it with glory. And you descended on a dead body lying in a tomb, our Lord Jesus, and you filled him with glory. And we invite you to descend upon us. We thank you that you're already in us, Lord God. I, I think you fill the temple with glory as the curtain rips. And we discover that there was something behind the curtain the whole time. And it comes out and it fills all of our ages and all of our space and all of our time with your presence. And you make all of our history, your history, you make everything new. So God, we invite you to fill the temple. God, I've seen you make people shake and drop. I've seen you heal bodies. I've seen you do signs and wonders as, as you do such things. But I think the greatest wonder is when we freely love because we've been loved. 
when we actually act like your body. So Jesus, manifest your life in us, we pray, that we would be your sanctuary and your body and your bride and even your mother in this world. Wow, <laughs> what a story. Amen. Now, um, just a couple things I want to say. The last three weeks, I wish I could have preached the three sermons all at once, but I know even one is more than I should ask for. Um, but, but, a lot of the, but a lot of it, people think, oh, this is confusing. And, and it's really not that confusing, I think, once you see it. And I, I wrote a couple books, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about the last three weeks. This first one, The History of Time and the Genesis of You, is about Genesis chapter one. The second one, God and His Sexy Body, is about Genesis chapter two, the fact that we're the bride and somehow we're to be all united in a communion of mutual sacrifice. A, a third one, I think I'm supposed to write Before I Die, which is be titled The Tree in the Middle of the Garden. If you pick, they have these back at the entry. If you pick up a copy, I think they cost the church five bucks. And if you, um, you want to pay for them, that's great. All the proceeds go to the church, okay? Not to me, at least not while um, I'm, I'm preaching now. So, but I, and so that way I can shamelessly tell you, you need to read them. This one, Michael and I are working on a few typos. Like there's this one typo that should say 10 to the minus 23rd cubic centimeters and it says 10 to 23 cubic centimeters. So just try to ignore stuff like that, okay? Um, but, but, it, but, it really, but it really is this incredible story. So, and you go, okay, well, it's still confusing to me. Well, what I'm saying is that the plot is simple and we butchered the plot. Do you know what the plot is? The plot is Jesus. The name literally means God saves. And so this is the gospel. God saves you from yourself. And that self is the self that thinks it creates itself. So this is the gospel. God saves you from yourself. And somehow we've cut up the words, rearranged them in order to say you save yourself from God. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. So uh, believe the gospel and, and it will change you. And, and if you like uh, prayer, members of our prayer team will be down front. Susan always says, Peter, explain the river. Well, okay, so the river is a picture of what I was preaching about, that um, there's a river that flows from the throne. Remember when you get to the, we preach through the revelations, and the river, it comes through a torn curtain, which the book of Hebrews says is the very body of, of Christ, and he is the temple, and uh, we tore his life apart and out flows a river. But lo and behold, the river flows into us. He rises from the dead and makes all things new. So this is just symbolizing the fact that there's a river that flows from the throne, and we invite you to come forward as you, if you want and pray with some of the of the prayer team people, all right? But um, no matter what, um, believe the gospel. And you see, when you believe the gospel, it does change things. It means uh, that, that when you encounter the knife that's, that begins to cut, it's not because God hates you, it's because God is making you in his own image. When you find yourself in the outer darkness, when you find yourself in hell, keep walking because that's not the end of the story. Jesus is the end of the story. In other words, whatever happens in your life, once you know that God is writing the story, you can be thankful. So have a wonderful Thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.